it's a bit obvious that something is going on here. Um, <laughs> the Americans will know what it is, and for those of you who may not know, I'll explain a little bit. Um, on October 31st, we celebrate uh, a holiday called Halloween, and it's a playful hol holiday. And it's a holiday about um, goblins and spirits and ghosts and uh, things like that. You'll see some of the pumpkins have um, skeletons and witches and spiders and coyotes and um, scary things. It's a it's a it's a it's a holiday of scary things and. Um, I, I, I looked up before I came here the tradition. It's pretty unclear where it comes from, but seems to maybe have some relationship to the Day of the Dead or, yeah. Anyway, but part of the playing of this holiday is uh, that we carve these pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns. And the uh, staff uh, has done this for you. And you can tell, obviously, there's lots of love in these pumpkins. Um, I can remember my first three-month retreat and coming in and just being blown away by the beauty of these um, carved works of art. It's a great tradition. And then uh, other parts of the holiday are a big part um, is for kids, for children, and they go around basically asking for candy or threatening <laughs> threatening tricks if you don't give them a treat. They go to houses and say trick or treat, which means you give me a treat or I'm going to play a trick on you. <laughs> and then we have things like haunted houses where you, people visit houses and there's all these scary things in the house. And it's kind of a holiday of, of playing with fear. Things that scare us or spook us. So I was thinking that most of us don't really need Halloween to feel spooked. <laughs> we spook ourselves every day with the stories in our minds, don't we? <laughs> we come up with all kinds of stories, worries, catastrophes, misfortunes, uh, and dangers in our minds, and then um, we believe them, and then we get scared of them. Most of you know the quote by Mark Twain, I've suffered many terrible misfortunes in my life, most of which never happened. So we create these scary realities in our thoughts. So tonight is a little bit of a talk about um, thought-created reality, the reality we create with our thoughts, and the alternative of sense-based reality. So Bonte started last night with bears. Um, I like bears a lot. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking in the woods, and um, I scared uh, a mama bear with three babies. You know, they're not tiny anymore, but they're still little. I came up behind them. Mama was ahead, and then there were the three little ones, and then there was me. And... <laughs> Baby bears can find and climb a tree in about one second. This is no exaggeration. Those three bears, pew, 
They were up a tree like that. It was incredible. I decided it wasn't a time for curiosity. I'm a natural curious person. <laughs> but um, I kind of backed away. <laughs> the babies were up in the tree. They're mewling for their mama. And then when I backed away far enough, um, they came down and uh, left with her. But tonight's talk isn't about bears, even though I like, <laughs> I like bears and would happily talk all night about some bear stories. And for those of you who get scared, the bears aren't going to hurt you. Uh, you probably aren't going to see one. And if you do, they're going to run the other way. So please don't, uh, don't freak out, okay? <laughs> don't create stories in your minds about the bears and then freak out. So somebody... Um, gave me uh, a paper entitled Meditation Hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. I'd like to share it with you. This woman who wrote it, her name is Kim Boykin. Um, She spent some time at the edge of the Rocky Mountain National Park last year, or whenever she wrote this. She got this pamphlet from the Department of Wildlife, and it said, What to do if you meet a bear? And she thought it sounded a lot like meditation instructions. So she substituted thought for the word bear. (laughs) And here are the helpful hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. (laughs) Colorado has been home to thoughts since their earliest ancestors evolved in North America. Today, increasing numbers of people routinely live and play in thought country. Learning about thoughts and being aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and the habitat in which they live. (laughs) What to do if you meet a thought? (laughs) There are no definite rules about what to do if you meet a thought. Thought attacks are rare compared to the number of close encounters. (laughs) However, if you do meet a thought before it has had time to leave the area... Here are some suggestions. Remember, every situation is different with respect to the thought, the train, the people, and their activity. First suggestion, stay calm. If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, calmly leave the area. Second suggestion, stop. Back away slowly while facing the thought. Give the thought plenty of room to escape. (laughs) Wild thoughts rarely attack people unless they feel threatened or provoked. (laughs) Speak softly. This may reassure the thought that no harm is meant to it. (laughs) If a thought stands upright or moves closer, it may be trying to detect smells in the air. This isn't a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, it may leave the area or try to intimidate you by charging to within a few feet before it withdraws. Don't run away or make any sudden movements. Running is likely to prompt the thought to give chase. (laughs) And you can't outrun a thought. If you have a potentially life-threatening situation with a thought please contact the red phone (laughs) in the office. (laughs) There's some good advice in there. 
Basically, if you leave thoughts alone, they'll leave you alone. Maybe it helps us to see thoughts as wild animals that we treat with respect and basically leave alone, give them lots of space. That's why I backed off from the mama bear, give her lots of space with her babies, right? Give our thoughts lots of space. You may have noticed that we live our lives primarily in what I call thought-created reality. So we spend a lot of time inhabiting the stories and the worlds that we conjure in our minds. Thought-created reality is really our best guess about what is going on. The mind takes input, and it comes up with a story about the way things are. A great example this morning with Brian. So there was the oatmeal. He didn't like the oatmeal. And the story the mind came up with is that the cook didn't like him. We do this all the time. We take a little bit of information and um, do our best guesstimate about what it means. And the brain's kind of lazy that way. It devises all kinds of shortcuts when it decides what um, reality is like. It works on assumptions and best guesses, past conditioning, quick decisions. Our thoughts in in general are not very fresh. Psychologists have determined that we have about 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day and that 99% of them are pretty similar to the thoughts we had the day before. (laughs) They've done studies on this. Or a quote somebody shared with me, your mind is what it's been pickled in. So the, the mind or the thoughts, the, the, the um, world we create with our thoughts, usually I'm like quick judgments rather than a, a carefully reasoned out assessment. Because the first one's a lot easier, takes a lot less energy. The brain uses a lot of energy. It likes to kind of go the shortest route to get things um, figured out. And it always, or almost always errs on the side of caution. So it has this like negativity bias because um, assuming the worst is more likely to keep us alive. Our thought created reality, like it's very much um, oriented towards survival. I mean, really, we learned how to think evolutionarily in order to survive better. And so our thoughts are very um, geared that way. And it's better to um, imagine the worst because uh, it's safer, you know. It's better to imagine that's a tiger out in the bushes rather than the wind because you're more likely to survive if you think it's a tiger. I watched the mind do this one time when I was sitting at a marsh. It was so interesting. I was outside near my house at a marsh, and uh, I like to sit in the woods a lot. And it was a windy day, very windy. And um, I was just sitting there kind of meditating. And then I hear this sound behind me, and it was like something like that. It was a pretty short sound, but it was a sound. And I watched my... um, mind do its job. And it was like it was going through a file cabinet in my mind, 
I could watch it. It was going flip, 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 this, nope, flip, no, that, flip, no, no. And it was like through all the files, like really quick. Wasn't sure, but it came up with, oh, that's water going over rocks. That was its decision after it flipped through all the charts it could uh, find there in the in the files. Um, and then the next second, this huge tree fell down behind me. So it wasn't water going over <laughs> <laughs> rocks. It was a tree falling down um, because it was windy and the beaver had eaten through half of the tree. Um, so, so then you can bet, like, that got stored in the files, right? Put a new file <laughs> in the file cabinet. And, like, the next time there's a sound like that, that's going to be in the front of the file cabinet. Um, because, I mean, it, it would have killed me if it had fallen on me. It didn't. But, but, you know, it's better to put that file near the front <laughs> and uh, have it easy access to it. So this is how the um, mind works. So our thought, um, as I said, our thoughts are um, conditioned towards survival. They're not conditioned towards happiness. Survival gets priority. Someone named Jonathan Safran Foer said, I think and think and think. I've never thought myself out of... I've thought myself out of happiness one million times, but never once into it think and think and think. I've thought myself out of happiness one million times, but never once into it. So part of the basis of this talk is you're not going to think yourself into freedom and into happiness. But I'll get back to that a little later. So we do this on retreat too, right? We make up these um, realities that are approximation of the way things are, and then we take them to be true. Sometimes we make up some pretty wild stuff on retreat. I remember one time I was on retreat with an ex-boyfriend. This was, I don't know, 20 years ago, a while ago. And we'd had a breakup that had been kind of painful for me. I wasn't quite healed from it. And so one day on the retreat, I saw a note on the board that he had written, I know his handwriting, right? That he had written to this woman who I thought he was interested in. I spent a week dealing with this. I, you know, I created this whole reality. He's now with her, and I'm unlovable, and I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. And really, loneliness, really... Um, uh, pretty intense stories. I made up this whole tr- reality, right? It was interesting. I learned a lot. I had to learn a lot because I was suffering so much. I figured I better pay really good attention. So I learned a lot about emotions and thoughts. It was fascinating. But the point of the story is that after the retreat, I said to him, what about that note that you wrote uh, to what's-her-name? And he said, I didn't write any notes on that retreat. So I had made the whole thing up. And I spent a a week living in this reality that I had made up. Out of the little piece of evidence that I thought it was his handwriting on the board. 
You'll do this here perhaps with like um, Vipassana romances. You'll see somebody here and you'll find them really interesting and you'll decide that they're just perfect for you. And they're the love of your life and you'll, um, you know, maybe create this whole uh, world with them. Maybe more when you're younger, when you get to my age, maybe not so much. (laughs) My first retreat, I was 24, I did plenty of that. (laughs) The person next to me, yes, totally thought he was the best. Um, Or you might have your Vipassana Vendetta, we can do that at any age. Um, (laughs) So that's the person that you... um, you know, you get a little bit of evidence, you decide that they're just completely a self-centered, mean person, that they only think about themselves and that they're clueless. You, you make up a whole story about them, right? And then you meet these people on um, in uh, the last week. And like, you're never right. You're always way off. Like, the, I had a Vipassana vendetta during that first retreat. It was a guy behind me who snored during a lot of the sittings. He was the sweetest person when I met him after retreat, just the nicest guy. I wasn't so nice. I wrote him a note, told him he should take a nap. (laughs) 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 Again, I, I was really involved in my reality, right? Like I made up this reality. And you're not supposed to do that. Please don't do that. But he was still nice at the end of the retreat. (laughs) So when we believe these um, thoughts and get caught in these stories, we call that identifying with the thought. Or you could say uh, being attached to to the thought. And it's pretty chaotic, right? We're like at the mercy of our thoughts. maybe even haunted by them. No one ever teaches us that we don't have to believe our thoughts. It would be a really great thing to, um, to put on the kindergarten curriculum. Here's something from Sylvia Bornstein that's kind of just right for tonight. We create big problems for ourselves by not recognizing mind energies when they arrive dressed up in stories. They are like the neighbor's children disguised as Halloween ghosts. When we open the door and find the child next door dressed in a sheet, even though it looks like a ghost, we remember that it is simply the child next door. And when I remember the dramas of my life are the energies of the mind dressed in the sheet of a story, I manage them more gracefully. So it's really just helpful to... um, Really, we, we have to get it over and over again, though, because our attachment to our thoughts is so deep. But to remember that there are stories that we make up. It's really about learning to hold them much more lightly because of this understanding. More on that later. There's an alternative uh, realm we can live in, you could say, than these thought-created realities, and I call that the sense-based reality, our sensuous reality. 
And this is, is the reality when we uh, connect to life directly through our sense experience. So we reclaim this direct connection to life through hearing and smelling, sensing in the body, tasting, seeing, directly experiencing the mind and the heart. So sensuous reality might include the feeling of your buttocks and pressure of your buttocks, a heaviness as you're sitting on the cushion right now, or the vibrations in the ear door of hearing my voice, or the seeing of color and form and light in the jack-o'-lanterns. Perhaps the scent of the flowers on the altar or the light scent of washed cotton. Maybe even a slight breeze on the cheek from the fans. It includes emotions which we feel viscerally in the body. The stories of the emotions are actually a protection from feeling it. The stories of emotions are... um, They're attempts of control. Lots of thought is an attempt to fixate and control life. So we come back to the visceral feeling of the emotion in the body. And this sense-based reality includes thoughts, but as arising and passing away experiences. In Buddhism, there's six senses in in addition to the traditional five senses of smelling and tasting and um, body sensations and hearing and seeing. There's a sixth uh, sense door of the mind. So thinking, emotions. One time Suzuki Roshi, somebody asked him this complicated question about consciousness. And he said, I don't know anything about consciousness. I'm just trying to teach my students to hear the birds sing. Just really simple. Arrive here, now, in this sense reality. Dropping into sense reality, we're more in touch with the way things are. The mind, as I said, the stories of the mind makes up a lot. (laughs) Fabricates. But with sense-based reality, we, we touch the truth, as, as you may have noticed when we um, feel the breath directly or we listen to sounds come and go. We touch the truth of change. We touch it firsthand, not thinking about it, but directly experiencing it. So perhaps, so perhaps we might have the thought of um, a knee pain, and it has a sense of some solidity, a thing, right? But when we come close to knee pain, when we really bring our attention in close, we see that it's a swirling, changing, um, moving um, process of differing sensations. Two different worlds, right? The world of solidity of the knee, of the thought of the knee and the pain in the knee, and the direct contact, which is um, always changing. 
thoughts and concepts uh, fixate reality. They freeze it, you could say. They conceptualize and freeze it so that we can control and manipulate this world. Notice how many of your thoughts are about somehow being able to control or manipulate the world. This isn't necessarily bad. Pays the bills. Get somebody to pay the bill and go to the grocery store and, and do the things that need to be done. But it's not... Um, It's a step removed from this direct connection to life. And this direct connection with our sense experience unfreezes reality, lets us touch the the changing, shifting, moving nature of life. So we drop into this sensuous reality, and we've been pointing you towards it. We've been pointing you towards it. We drop into it with patience. It's not like we can command it. Because anytime we try too hard, we overshoot. We can orient towards our sense experience. So we orient towards um, feeling the sensations of the body, of the breath. We orient towards hearing. But then it's more, it's more about allowing and receiving life. It's a kind of softening into life, letting life touch us, you could say. If there's too much grabbing <laughs> or going out after, it's, um, it's like a wild animal. It'll skitter off. We have to be patient and calm. We have this deep yearning for um, this sense-based connection with life, for this, this deep presence, you could say, in the, in the moment. We really want to be at home on this planet. One of my favorite poems, for me, captures some of this yearning and this um, really arriving deeply in the moment, not through thoughts, but through direct connection. It's called Ornithology in a World of Flux by Robert Penn Warren. It was only a bird call at evening, unidentified, as I came from the spring with water across the rocky back pasture. But so still I stood Sky above was not stiller than sky in pale water. Years pass, all places and faces fade. Some people have died. And I stand in a far land, the evening still, and am at last sure that I miss more that stillness at bird call than some things that were to fail later. We have these moments, like that moment of the bird call. We have these moments where we connect really deeply with, uh, with being alive. And, and we taste this on retreat. It's so great that we have so much time. I'm sure most of you have had some tastes of these kinds of moments where you arrive completely and fully here 
It might be a bird call. It might be a breath. It might be one step. It might be the taste of rice. It might be a breeze on your cheek outside while you're doing walking meditation. And we, and we really can um, know the sense of presence and the deep joy that comes through that connection. I walk in the woods a lot and I have pretty much the practice that uh, just as always practicing when I'm lost in thought, I'll come back to my sense experience while I'm in the woods. And I always, it's so interesting, but I often know when I've really arrived back because I'll have this sudden hit of the smell of the wood, like the woods, the scent of the woods will come alive and be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm here. Sensuous reality or sense-based reality reveals this wild, wild world that we've taken birth into. This world of constant change that resists our attempts to control it, that cannot be perfectly managed. Um, A Zen teacher named Chakusho Kwong tells it like this. These are falling leaves. Everything is changing. In one way, it's complete freedom. It is said that there are 6.5 billion instances in 24 hours. And in one second, there are 7,000 instances. As we are here sitting, they are continually coming and continuously going, just like when I strike my stick on the floor. Bam, 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 bam. Isn't this wonderful? This is complete freedom. We see ourselves as firewood going to ash. We see ourselves 30 years old going to 60. My God, look out, here comes 70. We see ourselves only in the linear, the sequential moving toward an end. We don't understand that within each 24-hour day there are 6.5 billion instances of life, death, life, death, gain, loss, dark, light, bodhisattvas, clouds, cars, you and me. All the dharmas are appearing and disappearing continually out of the beginningless beginning and the endless end. This is really fantastic. It gives us such a very wide liberating view that even to call it Buddha Dharma or anything else diminishes it. You get a sense of the wildness of life from that quote, just the wildness of of everything changing. So it's not a really um, neat world. It's a bit messy. That's why we like our thoughts. We like with our thoughts to try to neaten it all up and and get it um, controllable, but it's a wild world. So why would we want to drop into this messy world? Why would we want to give up the security of our thought-based world? We have to acknowledge that we like our thought-based cocoon. We have to acknowledge the depth of our attachment to our thinking, to our thoughts. It gives us the illusion of control in this wild world of change, this wilderness. 
number of years ago, um, I was doing a retreat in Washington, south in the northwest in Washington. And at one point I was sitting outside and I heard the sound. It was like, mmm, mmm. So my, my mind was like, what is that? So it's natural. We want to know, right? That's what the mind does. What is that? And it was like, oh, I think it's cows mooing. And then I listened again. I was like, mmm, mmm. I was like, no, actually, I think it's chainsaws cutting down the trees. And I watched my mind. It so desperately wanted to know which one it was. And it didn't matter. It was like way down. Long, I was up on a hill, so it was a long ways away. It was like, it's cows. No, it's chainsaws. And what I could see is that my mind wanted to know what kind of reality was happening. It wanted to make up a story about the reality so I'd know how to relate to it. It's cows. I like cows. I feel good about cows. Um, chainsaws. I don't like chainsaws. I don't want them to be cutting down all the trees. And um, it was like scramble, scramble, scramble so that we can know what kind of world this is. I never did find out, though I think it was chainsaws. It's <laughs> my best guess. <laughs> We want the comfort of our thought-created reality. Have you noticed those times when uh, sometimes you can feel that you're sitting there, everything's going pretty cool, you're with the breath and everything, and then you see the mind is like, oh, I want to think. <laughs> like, like you can see the intention to think. It's like the mind's like, oh, I just want to think. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's like, get me out of here. Get me into some kind of thought world where I can kind of make things the way I want them. A lot of our attachment to thinking has to do with um, reinforcing the sense of self. I mean, that makes sense for survival. That these thoughts would have to do with how to be more me. Somebody called them self-important bulletins from the Ministry of Misinformation. <laughs> I like that, self-important bulletins from the Ministry of Misinformation. Another kind of thought experience you might notice is um, it, this happens, for me it happens more when the mind's gotten pretty quiet. I call it the sportscaster. It's this voice that's narrating what's going on, and now she's doing this, and now she's doing that. And um, it's the strangest thing. It's like a sportscaster at a baseball game or something there, and now she's coming around third. Um, and you can see that, that its purpose is to keep the narrative of Rebecca going. God forbid, right, that it, should, that it should stop for a while. So it, all these other thoughts, like the irritations and the, and the grasping and all that's died down. So it's like, just okay, now this is now, now that's happening. <laughs> Don Juan from uh, the books, Carlos Castaneda's books, the um, Mexican shaman Don Juan said, you talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. 
We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. So in some ways, uh, on retreat, we risk stopping talking to ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. You can't control if you go off into thought. So don't take this talk to mean that now I have to go and make sure I don't think. That's not going to happen. Thinking is a part of our reality. We're going to get interested in how it is or what it is or how it functions. But we risk letting our thoughts go. It feels like a risk sometimes. Because we are letting go of this, um, how did Don Juan put it, the, um, the inner dialogue that uh, creates our reality. Wow, we're leaving a lot of space for uh, some new understandings. When we live in our thoughts, we um, experience life at at a bit of a remove. A yogi was commenting about this today in interviews. It's like we experience life secondhand, like when somebody goes and tells you about an event, but you weren't actually there. And we all do this a lot, but we do it less when when we meditate more. But as I said, there's no need to... um, uh, beat yourself up because you do it. It's just the human condition. And in some ways, it's compassion is called for, that we have this human condition where we, where we retreat from life into our thoughts. I read this story, Pema Chodron um, taught one time in Texas, and uh, it was in the 1970s, apparently, and there were all these guys in big 10-gallon hats, a lot of cowboy types, out in the um, crowd. And she, afterwards, she wondered, wow, did I, like, get through to any of them? Did, you know, what I said make any impact? And then it said that years later, she ran into one of the men at a book signing, and he uh, said that he'd been meditating since her talk, And that at first he was really hard on himself. That when he would uh, get lost in thought, that he would um, be disappointed and angry at himself before he would, you know, as he was coming back to the breath. And then he decided, because of her influence, that maybe a gentler approach would be a good idea. So he said that he started, um, and that what he did is he'd bring himself back to the breath by saying, thinking, good buddy. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. That's like a good attitude, right? Thinking good, buddy. Like, um, really kind. <laughs> That's what I recommend, really kind. It's not our own personal failure, even though we think it is. It's how the, um, it's uh, this human predicament. And so we can start to notice when we're uh thinking about experience and when we're actually showing up for it. When we're connecting. 
This takes time to really understand. So for example, if I ring the bell, at first you may hear the sound of the bell, then you, you probably somewhere in your mind you would think bell. Okay, so that's great. If we aren't meditating, that's the end of the story. We freeze reality, bell, done. We know what a bell is. We know what to do with a bell. Thought created reality. But if we meditate, we might notice bell and then really connect. What we call the sound of the bell is actually this vibration, right? And this changing, it goes wow, wow, wow. And it's not something solid, it changes. There's maybe a number of levels of tone that change. Very different than the idea of bell. And so with our practice, certainly we're going to conceptualize things, but then we try to come back to like, what's the experience? So same with the breath. We have this idea of the breath. We know a breath. Okay, it's another breath. What's the real experience of breathing? Not thinking about our breath, but feeling it. That's a lot of change happening. Different sensations on the in-breath and the out-breath, constantly changing. This is what we mean by investigate. So often when we say investigate your experience, what's the first thing we think? Oh, think about it. <laughs> that's, that's our general idea about investigation. So we become like Sherlock Holmes, right? Where we all become private detectives <laughs> and, and we think about all the different aspects of the Dharma, everything we've heard, and, and then we hope that we'll figure it out here while we're here um, during the six or 12 weeks. But freedom's not like solving a puzzle. It's about connecting directly, moment by moment, with experience and letting life teach us. So we connect with the sense experience moment by moment and we learn through that connection. It's a little bit more like um, Brian was talking this morning about riding the bike. We actually do it. (laughs) We live it. We live life. And it teaches us. So for an example, we might say investigate an emotion. Well, what does that mean? Sometimes we think it means thinking about the story of the emotion. No, no, the content is not what we're talking about. Well, sometimes we think it's thinking about the emotion. Why did this emotion arise and what does it mean about me? No, no. When we talk about investigating emotion, we mean connect directly with our experience of that emotion. So we often direct you to the body. Where do we feel it in the body? How does it change as we're with it? Sometimes it gets stronger. Sometimes it gets um, weaker. Sometimes it... uh, changes to another emotion. Sometimes it goes away. That's what we mean by investigate, to be with that process as it unfolds. 
Or maybe we notice a certain kind of thought, and we notice that the thought's really sticky. It has a sticky quality to it, and the mind feels maybe... If it's an afflictive emotion, maybe the mind feels dense and tight. What happens as we notice that? How does it change? That's investigating an emotion. But sometimes we just want to think about the emotion. That's a step removed. So we connect with our direct experience. We do, do, we do wish that we could think it out. That's our habitual way of solving things. So we do have this wish sometimes that, that, that we can think our way to freedom. So sorry, it's not that way. We experience our way to freedom. We let experience our life's expressions teach us. This morning we were talking about thoughts and insights a little bit. Thought I could say a little more about that. So, we will sometimes have uh, an insight into the nature of things. Sometimes it's an insight into a personality trait or some way that we do things, uh, or sometimes it's an insight into life, like how life is. And um, it's, it, if it's a true insight, it's, it tends to be uh, rather intuitive. But then often it will get formed into thought. But often the insight actually comes before the thought. The thought is us making sense of something that we've understood on an intuitive level, a deeper level. But then we'll have the insight, and then usually the temptation is, okay, I'm going to take this insight, and I'm going to milk it for everything I can get out of it. So then we take it, and we think and think about it, and we see if we can get more out of it. (laughs) That's not so helpful. It dissipates our energy. Usually everything we need to know is in that first insight. So notice, um, if we... If we do that, it's, it's, there's usually craving present if we're trying to get everything we can out of it. Um, so notice that that's craving. Sometimes there'll be uh, a cascade of insights. So you'll have one insight and then it'll be like, oh, and then it'll be like, oh. Insight often is experienced. There's a sense of like, oh, oh. <laughs> but so, sometimes there'll be a chain of insights, but you can tell the difference. Like insight has a crisp, clean quality to it. And then if it starts getting muddled, that's usually us adding all kinds of stuff on extra. You can feel the different quality. It starts getting kind of muddled. So so Dharma thoughts. Dharma thoughts seduce us a lot. We like them. Often when we get rid of all the thoughts about what's going on out there, by the time you've been here seven weeks, some of those thoughts about what's going on out there um, aren't uh, so much around. Like the main thoughts then become what's for lunch and... um, and what what kind of what's ha- the dharma what's happening and so then we have these dharma thoughts and we think well these are helpful 
Watch out for Dharma thoughts. They're actually, they're a disconnect. They're they're going into the thinking, the thought-created reality, right? A disconnect from our 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 experience in the moment. So, so you can name them Dharma thoughts, and then come back to like, what is happening right now? So, of course, thoughts are not the enemy. They're very skillful and helpful at times. They're part of a human life. One thing that happens with, um, like every time you let go of a thought and come back to the anchor experience, you are strengthening uh, your ability to disentangle from those spooky stories of the mind or all the all the um, entanglements of the mind. So each one of those moments is really great. And what happens over time is, as we um, meditate more, we have more choice about which thought patterns in our daily life. Here, thoughts are all the same, but in our daily lives, some thoughts are helpful to, to um, contemplate and other thoughts are not. Well, here too a little bit, but I don't want to encourage you to start thinking about that. <laughs> and thinking, oh, these are helpful thoughts. Um, it's like we can't really control what thoughts come up, but like more and more I find in my life, it's like, thought, find myself thinking, it's like, hmm, do I need to think about that? Oh yeah, actually that would be helpful to think about. Or no, you know what? That's really a waste of time. I don't really want to think about that. I don't need to think about that. And more choice about what, you know, thinking about what's wholesome and not thinking about what's unwholesome. But here on um, retreat, we're not so interested in the content for the most part. We're more interested in um, the nature of thought. We're more interested in, for example, that moment when you wake up. How powerful is a thought when we're aware? And how powerful is a thought when we're not aware? That, that, to see that in our own experience, we learn something about thoughts then. Like, for example, when we're not aware, thoughts are super powerful. When we're aware, what are they? Little wisps, they can just go. That's what I mean by learning the nature of thought. And in that sense, thoughts are all equal. We don't care too much what the story is. So seeing how thought manifests, how we experience it. I remember a number of years ago, I used to teach the teen retreat here. It was really fun. And uh, one teenager came in for an interview with me, and she's like, oh, I'm so not concentrated. My mind's all over the place. And then she proceeded to tell me about four different kinds of thoughts that she had and, and how each one manifested. So she's like, well, you know, there's the thoughts where you get really entangled in something and they're really sticky and lots of emotion. And then there's thoughts that are just like housekeeping thoughts, like what's for lunch? And then there's the background thoughts, like, like you know, like a radio on in the background. She, I was like, wow, Great. Who cares if you're concentrated? You're learning so much, right, about understanding thoughts and how they manifest. So 
sometimes um, we need thought vacations. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of appreciation for our need to escape into our thoughts sometimes. There's um, a quote I find entertaining by Jane Wagner, who is, um, oh, what's her name? I can't remember her name, but it's her partner and her um, writer. She says, I have made some studies, and reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I find it too confining. (laughs) 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 Reality is really intense, in my opinion. Like this life, where how many 7,000 mind moments in a second? That's intense. And... um, Sometimes we need a little thought vacation. I'm not suggesting that we take them on purpose, but don't be too hard on ourselves when we need a little escape into thought-created reality. It reminds me, my um, teacher tells a story when she did her first retreat here, and she came in the middle, or near the end of the three-month course. She'd never sat a retreat before. They used to let people in and out during the whole retreat. And um, so she looks at the schedule, right, and she sees sit, walk, sit, walk. And then at 7 o'clock, 7.30, she says, talk. She's like, yes, great, we get to talk then. (laughs) She was confused about that part. And then she said that she um, she would do a sitting, and then she would go to her room and lay down, and she called it a thinking bath. She would take a thinking bath during, during the um, walking period. <laughs> so she'd go think, and then she'd come back for the next sitting and do that. <laughs> it's so poignant, isn't it? Mm. It's helpful if we start to get a little bored of our uh, thought stories. There's really only two or three basic obsessive stories. There's, I want this, I don't want that, and uh, something about, uh, a story about who and what I am. Those are the kind of basic ones. There's a great um, interview I I read about with Leonard Cohen and the Shambhala-san and um, the singer Leonard Cohen, he was a Zen monk for many years, and he's like, oh, after so many years, you sit and you go through your stories, your self-aggrandizement stories, your schemes about this and that and everything. He goes, you go through them over and over and over again until they bore themselves into non-existence. <laughs> <laughs> May your stories bore themselves into non-existence, right? Just... Uh, At a certain point, they do, they become less interesting, our stories. They do get a little boring. They're pretty repetitive, aren't they? 
then we find it easier to let them go and uh, easier to acclimate to um, less dependence on thought for protection, control. We start to feel um, more and more at home in this world, more in touch with the truth, just the real basic simple truth right now. It's very relaxing. I decided a while ago that worrying is too much work. What a relief to let it go. It's so much work. We learn to trust a different kind of reality, right? We trust our thoughts so much, but there's another way that we can trust presence, the present moment. So our journey, every moment offers us this chance to awaken into sense-based reality, present time reality, to awaken out of our dream worlds of thought. These little awakenings offer us the gift of connecting directly with our sense experience and the opportunity to let life teach us the way things are. Thought-based reality can't really do that, as I mentioned, because it makes everything up. (laughs) It's too um, separate, too second-hand, not close enough to the truth. But this sense-based reality, the swirling knee pain, the symphony of changing sounds, the arising and passing away of anger as a felt experience, the continuous change at the sense doors, these teach us the truth of life. And then we taste this feeling of homecoming, of belonging when we connect to essential reality. And we notice um, these moments of clarity, connection. And we also see that this ability to wake into sensuous reality is also connected to the opening of the heart, to the development of compassion with this waking down, the down, coming down into the sense experience, we touch this world and we let ourselves be touched by this world. And it's supremely relational in that way. Thought-centered reality insists on our separation and our independence. It's based in survival after all. Sense-based reality shows our embeddedness and our relatedness with all that is alive. And from this connection emerges not only wisdom about the way things are, the truth of our universe of constant change, but also metta and compassion, the heart willing to be touched and willing to offer itself to the world.
This is a poem uh, somebody sent me recently called How to Listen by Joyce Setvin. Tilt your head slightly to one side and lift your eyebrows expectantly. Ask questions. Delve into the subject at hand or let things come randomly. Don't expect answers. Forget everything you've ever done. Make no comparisons. Simply listen. Listen with your eyes as the story you are hearing is happening right now. Listen without blinking as a move might frighten the truth away forever. Don't attempt to copy anything down. Don't bring a camera or a recorder. This is your chance to listen carefully. Your whole life might depend on what you hear. Let's sit for a minute and listen. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.